The opinions expressed on two-way traffic are those of Darren Coleman and are for general information purposes only. It does not constitute any legally binding engagement between the podcasters and anyone else. Always check with your advisors to obtain your own tax or investment advice. Welcome to Two-Way Traffic with Darren Coleman of Portage Cross-Border Wealth Management. In this series, Darren aims to guide you through the complexities, complications, implications, and most importantly, the advantages of having money and family on both sides of the border. In this episode, immigration lawyer Veronique Malka and mortgage specialist Freddie Apatol are back with Darren. Together, they'll help prepare Canadians who are entering the United States to live and to work. Enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Two-Way Traffic, our podcast on cross-border issues. And I'm joined again today by our friends Veronique Malka and Freddie Abitol. So, uh, Veronique, hi. How, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Darren. How are you? Hi, Freddie. Veronique, would you mind just taking a second and just introducing yourself and, and the work that you do while you're in New Jersey? Sure, sure. So I'm a Canadian immigration lawyer. Uh, I founded and operate a law firm called Canadian Law Group. Um, We focus on assisting Canadians to come to the U.S. and the other way around, Americans coming to Canada, based in New Jersey with affiliated offices in Montreal and Toronto. And for the purposes of today's particular topic about working in the United States as a Canadian, you are someone who's been in Canada, you're Canadian, and you went to work in in New Jersey, right? That's right. Okay, so we're going to touch on some of your own personal experience and how that lends into other people that might be doing a similar thing. And and Freddie, good afternoon. What's up, Darren? How are you? I'm well, thank you. You've also are a Canadian who's now in the United States. Do you want to share with us the work that you do, please? Sure. Yeah, originally from Montreal, so I own a, a mortgage bank uh, operating uh, for the last uh, 21 years in the United States. We have offices in 13 different states and operate and lend in 13 different states. Um, we specialize with um, foreign national clients. We have very unique products when it comes down to foreign national clients, helping not just Canadians, but a big primary focus for Canadians because I'm originally from Canada. So being from there, get a lot of uh, requests, but um, a lot of Canadians coming to Florida or other states. Got it. And I'm in Canada, so I'm Canadian in Canada, although my younger brother lives in uh, Massachusetts. He moved to the United States for work. And we run the largest cross-border practice within Raymond James in North America. So we work a lot with people who move in either direction across the border. So for today, we're going to focus our time and attention on that exact situation. Someone in Canada has a job opportunity. They're moving to the United States. So why don't we dig into it? So Veronica, I'll start with you. So the person's got a job offer in hand. They're going to go work. Do they just jump in the car, drive across the border, book a flight? Can they just, you know, I got the job offered today. I start on Monday. I'm just going to go. How does it work? Is it that simple? It can't be that simple. Definitely not. (laughs) Definitely not. You'd get a nice turnaround at the border if you tried to do that. I mean, unless you were to lie completely at the border and say you're just going for a visit, but effectively you were coming to work in the United States, which would never be advised. So take it. By the way, so before you go on, does that happen? People will just say, yeah, I'm going to go see uh, the other side of Niagara Falls, but they're really going to work. Do people misstate that? I mean, that would be. Well, those are not the people who call me for advice, so I wouldn't know, but I I know that that stuff happens. I think people are still barreling over the falls in barrels. I don't know. But that, that's not our client base, thankfully. Yeah, you want people that are planning this ahead of time. 
to do it right. Yeah. yeah, not calling you from the jail cell going, I have one call, don't hang up, right? We want to Those I refer out. I have people who can handle those. That's not our office. So yeah, I mean, I think the first thing people have to understand, and especially Canadians growing up so close to the uh, American border, you know, we, we've been cross-border shopping our whole lives. We go back and forth. It used to be a lot easier 20, 30 years ago to go over the border. Um, so, you know, what's the big deal? Somehow we tend to import that simpli simplistic idea. Um, I think that's where your question may stem from in terms of going to work and live. When you, yeah, our phones uh, work in both countries. We watch the same TV shows. Exactly. Like, isn't it the same? Like, and T-Mobile has cross border for free. So, like, I mean, you would well think for it's you, almost... not for Rogers and Bell could learn a few things. We're still in 1978, Ooh. I think, with our phones. Okay, okay. The reality is, a Canadian, when it comes to immigration, is truly a foreign national for United States. Okay, we're no different than an, a British citizen, a Pakistani. It doesn't matter. We are foreign nationals, no matter how familiar we may be with the United States. So when we want to actually go work in the United States, we could technically be taking the job of an American who could be using that, that, who, that income and working that job. Same system applies for Canada, of course. We want to protect the ability of Americans first in the U.S. to get jobs. The nice thing for Canadians, though, is that we have uh, a treaty with the United States and Mexico. Um, we call it Kuzma into Canada, but it's called UMSCA, going in United States, Mexico, Canada agreement. I think we all where, should practice that when we're stressed and UMSCA. So we should just. You have to be part of a list of professions that is enumerated in that treaty and have a sponsor, a job offer. But that treaty is great because it will expedite the obtaining of a visa for a Canadian. They'll get a non-immigrant visa called a TN visa for three years, renewable indefinitely. So that will allow that person and their dependents, their spouse and their children will get dependent visas. Then, you know, I'm comfortable with that visa for the most part. Obviously, if somebody would want to stay there permanently and knew that off the bat, they might want to go for a different kind of visa to lead to a, a, an immigrant visa that would lead to a green card or a green card straight off the bat. But it depends on every case. Yeah. So let's say in this case, the person's got a job offer. They're going to go down and they think they're going to work for a few years, see how it goes. So they right. get a visa. So now they can go. Now, do, what about for filing taxes? Do they automatically get a social security number when they get the TN visa? Or do they have to do that separately? Or do they even need one? Can they just write down their Canadian social security number? No, no. Everything will change. In the U.S., uh, they'll have to get an EAD, which is an employment authorization document. Okay, that is a part of the process of applying for a visa. The EAD uh, will then allow them to get a social security number. We call them social insurance numbers in Canada, SSN in the U.N. United States. Similar idea. Um, and then with that a number, they'll be able to get payrolled and to be paid in American dollars on U.S. soil. Taxation is a different issue. It depends how much time they spend in the U.S., and we can get into that further. Now, from a processing timeline, how long if somebody gets that job opportunity in hand, they've got the offer, is it a matter of like a couple of days to get all the stuff done, or is it going to be months? Like how long of a lead time do they probably need to accomplish these things? Well, the beauty about the treaty that applies to Canadians and Mexicans uh, going into the U.S. is that it actually bypasses 
um, the consulate processing, what we call. So you can, as a Canadian, apply directly at the border with, and I want to underline with, the appropriate evidence and prepared application. Um, and you can apply to a CBP officer for admission to the U.S. and to obtain that visa, TN. But this is stuff they should do before they get there. They're not going to do it at the counter. No, at the counter, they'll present what, for example, our firm would prepare an application. It would be probably something like 30 pages long. Okay. Um, you know, just you have something one handy. Like this, right? Yep. And then that will be brought to an officer, nice and polished, because they're human too, and they like to be tr treated with respect. Um, I often say to my clients, hey, when you get to the border, be nice. And they go, oh, well, it's not complicated stuff. Shh, be nice. <laughs> And I say, remember who has the gun, okay? Yeah, that's, that's right. That's the bottom line. <laughs> There's a so, reason they went into that job. <laughs> so, so along with being nice, which is really important, I think there's an important thing you said there, which is about being prepared. So if someone plays the home game, goes on the internet, thinks they have the right paperwork and I filled it out right and kind of shows up, they're probably more likely to make a mistake versus if they'd hired a professional like you to make absolutely sure that the full package is done, right? I assume this is fairly complicated and it's easy to make a boo-boo. Yeah, Darren, I would say for the most part, our clients are sophisticated enough. They know they need a visa. They might think of doing it themselves, but as soon as they drop down on Google, they'll see, ooh, it's not so simple. It could fly back in my face. They'll contact an attorney in the US um, and they'll ask what's involved. It goes very well until we tell them how much. And then usually there's a little <laughs> step back. Yeah, I guess. But, but getting you know, it wrong is probably more expensive in terms of time and inconvenience, right? There's no question. There's no question. We're really talking, and I like to be really clear about these things. We're in the couple to a few thousand dollars. It's never worth it. It's never, ever worth, you know, and we're talking for three years, and then it's much easier to even to renew it. So I would never recommend anyone do this without the proper advice and the proper preparation, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, another, a bit of a wrinkle to this, because now that so many people can work remotely, they got their laptop, they got their camera built in, they can do it anywhere. So what about the situation of someone who's in Canada that says, look, I'm going to take an, an opportunity with a, a U.S. employer, but I'm actually not going to leave my house in Canada. Do they still need to go through this process or how does that work? Well, they're not working on U.S. soil. That's the bottom line. They're not necessarily taking the job away from an American. It gets very fudgy in terms of the taxes and that we don't have an accountant on our group right here today. We do have somebody that we work with, as we all know her. But I think that the idea is at that point to be very clear, to make sure the client has the proper advice with respect to taxation. Yeah, because you're right. That's where it does get very complicated for the employer because now they're technically an employee in Canadian and do they have the right payroll set up? So, but I didn't know from the worker's perspective if they still need to get a visa if they're actually not physically in the US. They can take employment, but so that's a whole other subset of issues. I would definitely, at the very least, get a consultation with uh, a cross border lawyer when that situation arises because there are just so many little facets of that that need to be looked at, okay? So are they going to be traveling? Obviously, if you have an employer in the United States, at some point you're going to go there. So then it could become tricky. Oh, right? that's so where it gets complicated. Well, yeah, because yeah. you're working for an American employer. And why the, the CBP officer at the border is going to ask you, why are you coming in? 
I'm going to see my boss. Oh, so you work in the U.S. That's yep, it. That's Where's your visa? You know, you got to be very careful. Right, right. So now let's just change gears for a second. So the person says, okay, I've got the visa. I did everything properly. I'm now in the United States. We're going to talk with Freddie in a minute about how do I buy my house and everything else. So I'm down there. I've got, as you said earlier, the spouse can go, the kids can go. Can the spouse work? Can the kids work? Or is everybody under that same visa and they can all, you know, the kids can work at Dairy Queen while they're in high school and the spouse can get a job too? Like, is everybody covered or are they not? Well, the spouse is going to get, if you have a TN visa, again, there's other visas, there's the green card, et cetera. But case by case, if we look at, for example, a TN visa and the spouse is going to have a TD visa as a dependent, um, typically they're not allowed to work on a TD visa. The children will have to go to school. So in order to go to school, you're talking about a college age child or. Ah, well, that's an interesting wrinkle. So what if they're 17, 16 or 17 years old, they want to pick up a part-time job at McDonald's. Nope. Can't work. No, no, no. no. If you're going to get a study permit or a study visa, they're, they're not allowed to work. It's very clear on the permit and the work permit or the visa, what they're allowed to do. And again, consultation is key. Got it. Okay. So we're going to actually, we're going to come back before we're done today about what happens when my child goes to school, like university in the United States while I'm there, you or if I'm in you Canada, well, you go get a good job. Um, or they, uh, they, they're, you're in Canada and your kid's going to go to us school, which was my situation. So we'll come back to that in a second. So let's go to Freddie for a second. Now, so we've got the job offer in hand, I've met with Veronique or one of her colleagues. I've got all the right paperwork. I'm across the border. I'm starting work. I need a place to live. So how do I do that? Like, is it easy? Do I, can I, can they use my, you know, my TD, my Royal Bank credit information or, or not? Right. We talked about this in a previous chat, but I thought we should recapture some of that information today. How easy is it for me to just go get a mortgage at the local bank branch in Michigan or New Jersey or Texas? Right. It's a great question. So we deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis. A recent case, a good friend of mine from Montreal transitioned over to Florida. And some of his first, he works for a very large company and the company sponsored him to come here to the United States. I don't know the specifics of the visa aspect of it, but that's how he was transitioning over. And some of the questions that he had prior to making that move, six months prior to making that move is, okay, where am I going to send my kids to school? What area am I going to live in? Uh, can I buy a house? Can I leverage my credit in Canada to buy in the United States? Right? Um, I don't have income that I'm filing in the United States. How can? How are they going to underwrite my file? So those are all very important questions that he was going through, trying to understand that transitional period, how it was going to work, the timeline behind it. It was a big moving part, especially when you're moving your whole family, right? Your yeah. wife, kids, the school. It's a big deal. I mean, Dog I did cat. it myself. Right, dog, yeah. cat, exactly, right? Vaccines, uh, I got a kid, a whole bunch of vaccines before they go to school. So it's, it's just a lot. Um, but just to, to come back to your question specifically, it's not that complicated when you're working with the right people and have access to the right products. Okay. Um, so just, just to kind of set the table here uh, for you to understand, when you're working with the, like the big banks like Bank America, Wells Fargo, they won't even look at that file. They, they mm. won't lend on that. So it's a very unique and specialized foreign national, what we call foreign national mortgage product that allows them to go ahead and leverage whatever credit they have in Canada, whatever income they have in Canada, and be able to underwrite based on that and those specific details to be able to make their purchase over here. Which now, is important, right? Because if, if you have someone who's had a, a successful career in Canada, they built a credit history here. 
you know, they paid their credit cards, paid their mortgage. But as soon as they walk into that bank in the United States, they just don't exist right. from a from the bank's perspective. It's like you've been newly formed on the planet and you have no history of any kind, right? Correct. They they can't borrow. They can they cannot borrow. Period. Right. Um, that's why these specialized products are in place, and even even above and beyond that. So when I'm talking about using, let's say, their income, so you have let's say a, a T four individual, right? Salary T right. four individual. Um, we qualify them a specific way. But sometimes you have a self employed individual. He's got business in Canada, and that file is structured a little bit differently, but is very light in terms of documentation. Allows them to transition very easily to make that purchase. Again, with the right structure and the right product. Got it. Okay. So the person goes down there, they meet with you. You can then take them through how to use their credit bureau. Now, the mortgage is one issue, but we've had instances of, you know, an executive who makes, you know, six or seven figures in Canada, relocates to the United States. They're shocked that they can't even get a credit card with the $500 limit. So, so it's not just the mortgage. Can you also help them navigate or show them how maybe to accelerate the credit bureau process so they can start getting car loans, credit cards, lines of credit, and alongside or in conjunction with a mortgage. The mortgage is the big one we think about, but there's all these other, you know, other uses of credit that we have to be mindful of. Yeah. So coming to the United States, if you have no credit, you are, you are nothing, right? Um, unless you're buying everything in cash, right? If you're buying your home in cash, your car in cash, everything in cash, wonderful, good for you, great. You don't need credit, but eventually credit will show up somehow, some way, and you're going to need it. I mean, you go to T-Mobile, they're going to run your credit before they give there you, you an actual a telephone phone. line. Right? Think yeah. about that. If you have, yeah, if you have, if you have nothing, so or you have to put, you have to put a big cash down payment again, right? Cash. Uh, but the idea is that being Canadian myself and having gone through that transition um, at the time with four kids. Uh, it was not so simple, right? Uh, we didn't really know, okay, well, what should we do and what steps should we do it? So there really is a two-step process to this whole thing. Not to get into all the details right this moment, but the idea is that, okay, step one, I want to relocate. I understand where I want to be. I understand what the process to get my mortgage. Now I am able to make them my acquisition. I bought my property. I have my U.S. foreign national mortgage, let's call it. Right. Okay. When you're established over here, let's say as of day one, we have designed an actual what we call credit boost plan where you can actually go ahead and accelerate the process to get a U.S. credit score. And there's very specific steps to go ahead and accomplish that and very specific strategies to accomplish that, mm. which then makes it. So in a matter of as short as 90 days, we've seen it some some cases as short as 60 days, literally having a credit score reporting on the U.S. Credit Bureau on their U.S. Social Security number. Right. So they've got a FICO score that they now can utilize to get that T-Mobile and everything else. That's really critical. And and does that process get accelerated or benefited when they've now got you know employment income from a U.S. employer? Is that a, that that sounds like that might be something really helpful to accelerate that process, right? It's a good it's a good question. It actually one is not tied to the other. Uh, huh. If they just yeah, if they just follow the steps that we give them, uh, especially if they're purchasing a property and they get a mortgage, once they actually get their U.S. mortgage mm -hmm. and they get their U.S. Social Security number, we can tie. Even though they purchase with their Canadian social, we can tie their U.S. social to their U.S. mortgage and have a report on their U.S. credit. Aha. So they don't have to be busy going to work and getting, you know, a, a semi-monthly or bi-weekly paycheck for two years before they finally blip the computer. Right. 
Right. So it's it's about understanding the system and how you can navigate through it and the, the little technicalities, which will allow them. And this is what we put part of the plan and how we help them structure themselves and give them the, uh, you know, the, the way that they need to go. Because a lot of them, they also come here and they hate. The, there's public transportation, but you need a car. You, bottom line is you have children, you need a car. You're not taking them to school. You're not taking your three kids to school uh, on the bus, right? It's going to be, it's, it's challenging. Uh, then if you don't have the cash to buy a car, you need to finance, you need to lease it. How are you going to do that? You need credit. So we explained them how to go through that process and be able to get their credit to be able to accomplish all those things. So that's, so it sounds like if they're going to go down a conversation with you before they begin even shopping for a home is really, really critical because you're going to help also guide them, not just on how to get the process, but how much can you qualify for? How much can you spend? How much can you purchase? That's also part of the advice you would give, right? Yeah. Like Veronique said, a lot of the clients that we deal with are typically sophisticated enough to, and responsible enough to understand, hey, I need to go ahead and speak to this guy, that guy, and this guy to really figure out where I'm sitting. Now, sometimes they don't know who to speak to because they just don't know. They don't know how right. to ask the right questions. Where should I go? But by having that preliminary conversation, let's say with me, Hey, Freddie, you live in the U.S. I know you transitioned over here. Um, what, how, how is it going to work for me? What, am, what should I be looking out for? And then all of that unravels a whole bunch of stuff, and that's where the experts like you, Darren, will come in and speak with them about those specific pieces they need to talk about or Veronique on the – so, yeah, it, it happens. Because the first thing they think about is, oh, I want to move. I want to get a house. They don't think about necessarily always immigration or, hey, I've got my assets in Canada. How am I going to transfer? What's going to happen? So, yeah, it's it's critical. Well, it's interesting because we often get uh, uh, pulled in when the person forgot about their assets in Canada. You know, they're usually so <laughs> focused on the new job, the new career, moving the family, buying the home, getting the T-Mobile, you know, North American plan and everything else. They kind of forget that their Canadian assets also become problematic. Uh, and, and so one of the things that we often encounter is someone who has their Canadian RSPs that they've built up and they're like, well, those are fine. I'm going to, you go to the U S I'm going to leave them here. And unfortunately what's starting to happen. And even though there's some, um, regulatory exceptions and things that would allow the Canadian financial institution to keep dealing with the person in the U S a lot of the financial institutions in Canada, as soon as you change your address to the United States or whenever the computer figures out that you've changed it, uh, they're starting to be told, um, we don't want to talk to you. We're going to freeze your account because that some of the, that, that happened, happened to you happened to my daughter. I had, um, um, our, our ESB, I think. It, yeah. That's another one. I, yeah. You know, with a, a trust plan and we'd moved here. I mean, we're still Canadians. It doesn't make any sense. You know, uh, we have a residence in both that exactly, exactly what you said. They said, ah, oh, we can't talk to you. Freeze. Yeah. That's my money. <laughs> yeah. And it's very confusing because um, in some cases it isn't a rule. Like I've had people say, I can't find a tax rule. And I'm like, actually, it's not. It's the policy of the financial institution. And, and a big part of that, I'll stop with RSPs for a minute, uh, is because the, the SEC has granted ex, what's called exemptive relief to Canadian financial institutions to deal with somebody, but really only as a snowbird. So as soon as somebody's an employee, well, you're moving, is that, are you still a snowbird? Or because are you just in Florida for a month and a half or are you coming, like, are you there permanently? What, where, what is the exemption actually? And also the exemptions are state specific. Uh, and so what we're finding is the financial institutions in Canada generally do not want to be getting burdened with, well, what's the rule for New Jersey and is it different than Nebraska? 
or is it also different in Calif? They don't want to deal with that. So we're increasingly finding people saying, my bank or my financial institution is frozen me. And I didn't think that was going to happen. And I can't figure out why I'm Googling like crazy. What do I do? So, so that's also a consideration when people are moving is to make sure that the stuff you're leaving behind, you can still attend to while you're gone. Um, and that is one of those things that people don't usually think about because they didn't anticipate an issue, right? And the good news is when it they're going to the States, to they, that happened to you too. Holy cow. I yeah. didn't plan. We did not, I, we did I, not rehearse this. We didn't know this is what you guys well, yeah. Listen, it, it's, you learn, you, you live and you learn, right? I, I wish I had the opportunity to listen to a podcast like this or experts like you guys before I made my transition. But listen, it's, it's a common mistake. You're so overwhelmed with the yeah. move and the, the children and the school. There's so many moving parts. Right. You, you, you don't, it's not, sometimes you don't even think about it. It's just, you know, it's an honest mistake, but it's it's just about taking the time and really being able to get in front of the right people. Well, and, have, and having people who have experience with the problems, because right. that's so that's one issue we encounter people move and they didn't know this was a problem until suddenly it was a really important problem. We also experience the other thing when people are down working in the U.S. for a, a, not their whole career and they're going to come back to Canada. We've seen them set up retirement plans and, and other uh, investment uh, protocols that they're not really portable back to Canada when they return home to retire or whenever their period of time working in the U.S. is done. So, uh, And they're going, wait a minute, I just built this little financial empire here. Why can't I bring it home with me? Or I can, but it's, how much tax am I going to pay? So this is something we also help people with is, is understanding kind of the full cycle of work, employment, savings, retirement, and saying, like, how do we make sure that whatever you've built in either country you can manage it or bring it with you or manage it from wherever you are so that it works both while you're gone and when you come back. Uh, and people, and we just want to avoid those negative and nasty surprises that, because moving is hard enough, right? To say, oh, I didn't know that no one told me that. Uh, and again, we also make the assumption that, hey, because we look kind of the same and we have the same cultural things, it should be the same, right? It's almost like we're two separate countries or something. Yeah. <laughs> It's so weird. We are. <laughs> it's so weird. Okay, so let's change gears. Now, this one kind of hits me close to home. Uh, my son uh, was a very good baseball player. I would joke with him that if he was a little uh, little bit worse, we would have had better family vacations because uh, we spent a lot of time on baseball diamonds. So uh, so he was one of the very few Canadian uh, young men that gets the chance to play Division One baseball in the U.S. So he was able to play baseball in the U.S. for a couple of years. Um, I'm glad he's home because I don't have to pay for that anymore because, wow, was it expensive. Uh, but let's talk about that. So, so, um, let's go back for me in time, but for someone else that, um, either they're one of two scenarios. So either like us, we're in Canada, the kid goes to the U S what do we need to be thinking about for there? Or the situation of someone's moved to the U S they're working, they moved when their kids were teenagers. Now they're going to university and they're going to go to the school nearby. Can they just go? Or is there a little more to it than that? I'm going to guess there's more to it than that. This is always, always we should actually rename this to call podcast. So there's more to it than that. Is there more? To it than that? There's always more to it than that. So, you know, again, so depending on the age of the child, uh, always different facts, different advice. But um, if you have a child under the age of 21 and the parent is qualified for a, a, a visa under what is now called something different, but we'll still call it NAFTA because everyone knows NAFTA. Right. Um, Not the Schmernowitz, whatever the word you used before, exactly, the umlaut yeah. or whatever it was. Umza. Umza. And then, of course, it's different in Mexico. It's different in Canada. It was fine before. NAFTA was fine. Okay. But anyway, 
So here we have it. Um, the child is now under TD visa, that child and the spouse. Uh, if the child is under 21, they can go to school with a TD visa. Uh, if the child is over 21, that is a different story. Um, they cannot work on a TD visa. Uh, Canadian typically, again, like I said in the beginning, is a foreign national to the United States. A child over 21 is like your child, for example. Um, who, for my, well, mine is a dual citizen, so mine also cost me a fortune going to school here <laughs> instead of going back to Canada. That was really frustrating. Um, but a child like yours, Darren, who would come to the U.S. would need what's called an I-20 from the school. An I-20 is a document the school issues, the international student officers issue there are special officers in schools who know how to do this. Takes a week I was, or two I was just, to sorry to interrupt. I was just going to mention for any parent that's kids doing this, find that department and become friends <laughs> with them because you will need them for copies of tax slips and all kinds of stuff. It's amazing how much you want to be interfacing with that particular, it's usually Great one advice. person. Great advice. Yes, absolutely. Those international student officers need to be your friend. Um, they, they are responsive to emails. They are usually dealing with people from all over the world, not just Canada. So um, they might be multilingual as well. So the nice thing is with an I-20, that is already the first hurdle for Canadian, uh, for U.S. immigration, which is does that child's uh, study program qualify? And do they financially, does the child financially qualify to be in the United States? And that's right. where the parents are in the background going, yes. He or she qualifies. <laughs> um, well, the, and on that front, by the way, so it, in most RESP plans, education savings plans in Canada, you can use the capital in them to fund university education in the United States. So that's good. But everybody should check their plan to make sure that that's possible, what that process is and what documentation you need back from that international uh, department in the university. That's what you know, we got to know them to make sure we got all the right tax slips and that kind of thing. Um, so that's a really essential part of that. Um, but the other reality is that as a Canadian, you generally have no ability to get any kind of aid that uh, an American um, student might have access to. There's really no financial support for the Canadian family, unless perhaps they're working in the US, right? Or is that something that I'm incorrect on? Uh, well, that part I don't really get involved with. Okay. Uh, I just make sure that they have, we make sure they have the proper documentation to be able to go to school in the US. Um, I would probably have send them to you, Darren, or to Freddie to figure out the financial piece behind that. Um, it, I, yeah, I we weren't eligible what, for it based on anything. So I quit asking questions when they told me no. <laughs> even though he was such a good baseball player, there was nothing. Right. Well, so he, yeah, there was a little bit of it. They don't, listen, if he played football or if he was seven feet tall and played basketball, it would have been better. But uh, baseball doesn't quite pay that much. But the, in terms of financial aid, as a Canadian in Canada, there was no eligibility for that. But I think if you're working in the U.S., that might be a consideration is what are some of the supports. But a lot of them are very much income dependent. Um, and also which school, like Ivy League schools, don't have any uh, scholarships, for example. They don't have any athletic scholarships. So you, if you need financial aid, then it's a question, do you qualify? So it does. So that, and, and because of the cost of the U.S. school compared to a Canadian school, these are really important things for people to plan ahead for, right? Yeah. You're not, I mean, unless you've got a lot of money, you can't really pay for Harvard on your credit card. Right. Yeah. So I, I've, I've asked myself the question often as to why there is an attraction to coming to study in the United States. I can't answer it considering that I know the cost difference, and I think Canadian schools are excellent. However, um, 
you know, things happen and people choose different things. So if they do, there's a process immigration wise. Um, and that I-20 that we were discussing can, will lead to an F-1 visa. The F-1 visa is what will govern the student's ability to work, uh, to study in the U.S. So while we're on this one, because a lot of uh, one of the reasons I think a lot of the Canadian kids go to the U.S. and is kind of my son is is athletics right? Um, as the athletic opportunity. So one of the things I'm going to ask you about, because this is a relatively new change, is that the NCAA now allows student athletes, if they're really awesome, to start receiving compensation through endorsements, which is something that never happened before. Um, but you mentioned that the Canadian uh, student cannot work while they're in the U.S. So forget getting the part-time job. There is no way to do that. Can they receive an endorsement contract potentially? That's a great question. They might need to go through a few steps. Um, an endorsement may qualify for an exemption. Um, it has, it's not a situation I've come across. Um, that's fair. It's also fairly new that this has even been possible. So yeah, yeah, it's a, that's great. Um, it would seem to me logically that an endorsement is not, you know, that that student is obviously qualifying because of a special ability. So whenever mm. there's a special ability, there are other kinds of visas we can look at. It might be an O visa, a P visa, you know, different alphabet soup. So that's, I call it the alphabet soup of visas in the United States. So. Okay, but that's a good, that's an interesting consideration for people to look at, because this is a relatively new right. opportunity for student athletes. So my son was good enough to cost me a lot of money to go play, but not good enough for someone to pay me to have him go there. So there was no endorsement. Nike did not call. There was no, there were, there were no Air Coleman's that were getting made, unfortunately. <laughs> Although we are open to offers if anyone from Nike is listening. We are open. So we would be happy. Under Armour, I'm not, the brand does not matter. Just we'll take your check. We'll take your check. So just call. So now, Freddie, question for you. So um, if the parent, you know, the child's going to the United States, if they're not in residence and I said, look, I would like to buy a property for him to live in, buy a house for him to live in. And because that's becoming a fairly common thing that we see people up here do is they'll say, look, my kids are going to be in school. Why don't I buy a house? They can live in and get some, you know, three or four buddies and they can all share and that kind of thing and use it as a bit of an investment. So if I wanted to do that, for example, um, are I able to, I, could, I obviously I could use my Canadian line of credit, my resources, but could I buy a property and just get a mortgage on it is, or if I'm in Canada? Yeah. So we, we come across that. We come across that often. We come across it often, um, not just in this scenario, but you know, you do people call us and say, Hey, listen, I, um, have my child that's going to be going to New York um, and they were going to be going to school over there. And instead of spending $5 million a month on rent uh, for, a, for a little box, I want to be able to make the investment and purchase something. Okay, great. Um, so we have the ability of slightly, it's structured slightly differently than the one who's actually moving here and will be using that right. residence as a primary um, that, that's what I was curious be, about because it's not yeah. the same as somebody moving as we talked about. This is like, I'm in Canada, but they're there and I'm going to tangle this right. up a little bit more. Right. Which is, which is not, a, which is really not a problem. And, and the structure is, is treated in such where it'll be or considered an investment property or okay. a second home. Um, for the, to be clear, not, not for the purpose of taxation, but for the purpose of mortgage, um, okay. The way that that's treated on a taxation level is it could be the, treated. That's a whole other chat, right? 
a whole other chat. Correct. So second, uh, second home or investment property. And the requirements are really nice because they fall into the same requirements that we have on our foreign national mortgage product that would actually be the person moving in their primary residence. So as easy to qualify, as simple to qualify. And it allows them to not only say, hey, you know what, I'm not going to be burning the money in, uh, in rent. I'm going to have the ability to put it into a mortgage, build the equity of the property, and be able to have a piece of real estate that's there. And eventually, when they want to sell it, you know, rent it out to other students that may be, in, depending on the area that they're in. Yeah. So we do come across that often, and it is, it's fairly straightforward for us based on the product and the way that we have it structured for them to get into a property. Well, that's interesting. So we've had people try to do that. You know, their kid goes to school in Massachusetts or Texas, and they would like to buy yep. it. And they're they again, they go to the local bank branch, and it's like, forget it, this isn't happening. Yeah, right. You're from Canada. Where's Correct. that? We don't know how to. <laughs> exactly. Your 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 money is colored. We don't take that. <laughs> it's multicolor. Yeah. Well, no, thank you. Say, well, I'll give you a toonie. They're like, who? What? They don't get it at a all. Toonie. <laughs> That's funny. They don't understand. Um, but here's another question in terms of while the child's away, uh, or while they're there. How is it really important while people are working in the US or as the kids to start getting them some kind of credit file, whether they're using credit? How would how would someone or some tips to help people kind of accelerate that credit? I don't want to give you all the secrets, but have you got a couple of little things that help people to just is it like maybe you give your kid a cell phone in their name or something like that? What are things that can be done to boost their 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 ranking? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, we we came across that many times where what happened is we had uh, the kid who was going to school uh, graduate and he's like, okay, I, I want to continue to live in the United States, right? Um, how do I deal with that on a, on a visa standpoint? I don't know, but they, they were asking about that transition, but they're like, okay, I got the visa figured out, but I want to be able to now go out and be able to, to rent a place, let's say. Right. Well, yeah. to rent for most places, when you want to rent, they check your credit. That's right. Uh, and and they were they're here for four or five years and they never did anything about actually trying to build their credit. Right. right. So there there are similar ways and strategies that we use for the people that are moving from Canada permanently to United States. For people that are moving here temporarily, the key though is they would have to have a US social security number. Uh, because that that's what everything is built off of. So if they do have one, then there are there are certain plays and strategies we put into play for them to actually get their credit built out. Um Fair, again, fairly quickly, so they have the ability to a get a credit card, apply for a credit card, right, and help them build their credit. B get a cell phone and and other things that may require that credit, kind of thing, a car, right? whatever the case. Yeah. So this is really important because when the parent moves down, they should be mindful of how do I help my child build some kind of credit yes. exposure, or if they're a student, how do they they do that? Um, yeah. Now I want to. You mentioned something interesting there that we should kind of zero in on. So Veronica, so the child's down there on a student visa, they graduate or because they're graduating from a U.S. school, there might be U.S. company recruiters. Can they just, because they graduated from a U.S. school and they have a U.S. student visa, do they automatically have the right to work? No, they have to change status. There's a concept called adjustment of status in the United States. And we have a similar concept in Canada. The idea is you came in on one status, now you're changing status. Changing status might even be changing to a visitor status. So they might want to adjust their status from an F1 to a B2, which is a visitor status for a little while. And then they get a sponsorship, depending on the sponsorship. Remember, they're Canadian. Right. It might, I might advise them, oh, this is great. You're on the list of professionals for NAFTA. We're going to flagpole you. 
That means I'm going to prepare your application. I'm going to send you back to Toronto or Montreal if it's closer. And I'm going to, wherever that is, it may be on the West Coast, but I'm going to make you go turn around the flagpole, not literally, please, not literally, <laughs> and come back in. Um, wow. And then at that point, the CBP officer would study the file and hopefully award the um, the type of visa that you've applied for. So I now, now I'm going to tee up our next conversation, which is connected. Like, what if they just decided to get a fiance and they decided <laughs> to get a spouse? Does that not just shortcut the whole process? So first, <gasps> Coming up first, on our next conversation. Green up, green up, I actually had an immigration client come to me years ago and he sat there and he told me, here's my new wife who didn't speak the same language, who he met in a tomato field somewhere. She was a legal immigrant, but I said, and you make how much money? Okay. I'll get you your visa. If you get a prenup first, how about that? <laughs> Got it. Got it. Yeah. So it's that, cause that's, cause that's another reality, especially when you have, you know, you're establishing your family, your kids, you might be, your kids are Canadian, but they may meet an American and fall in love. And then what happens next? Uh, cause as many people discover that when you marry an American, you also marry a tax regime. That's going to be the focus of our next conversation for everybody. So, uh, so with that, I think we covered a lot of ground today. Did we miss anything? Anything else to add or final thoughts, Freddie, Veronique? No, I think we we covered a lot of ground and uh, some great uh, some great advice for everybody. Okay, and Veronique, any other final parting comments for today? Think about it before get your visa. Think about how to establish credit. Think about how to move your assets or remember your assets. I think those are really good fundamental things to think about. Like you said, Freddie, I like that expression. A lot of moving parts, but all those parts are important. So you got to be like Scouts Canada. Be prepared. And remember you too. That's the other one. Okay. Well, with that, thanks very much, guys. I always appreciate our conversations. And for those of you that were joining us for this, thank you very much for watching. We'll see you on the next one. Can we do our little? You're going to do your thing now? There you go. Do the thing. Gang signs. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care. This has been Two-Way Traffic with Darren Coleman of Portage Cross-Border Wealth Management. Thanks for watching and listening. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for new episodes, send us an email at twowaypodcast at gmail.com. And you can find the Two-Way Traffic Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. This series is a production of the Acme Podcasting Company. On behalf of the Two-Way Traffic Podcast and Portage Wealth of Raymond James, thank you for listening to this conversation. This podcast has been prepared by and expressed the opinions of Darren Coleman and his guests and are not necessarily the opinions of Raymond James Limited. Statistics, data, and other information presented are from sources Raymond James believes to be reliable, but their accuracy cannot be guaranteed. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not construed as an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of securities. Investors considering any investment should consult with their investment advisor to ensure that it is suitable for the investor's circumstances and risk tolerance before making any investment decision. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and should not be construed as providing legal, accounting, and or tax advice. Should viewers have any specific questions or issues in these areas, please consult your legal tax and or accounting advisor. Raymond James Limited is a member of the Canadian Investment Protection Fund. Raymond James USA Limited is a member of FINRA and SIPC. 
Raymond James Limited and Raymond James USA Limited Financial Advisors may only transact businesses in provinces and or states where they're registered.